Welcome to Treasure Talks. Today I've got Ash Dykes, who um, walked 4,000 miles of the River Yangtze, and that's now out on Nat Geo. And you may have also seen him on Joe Rogan. Thanks for coming on, mate. Hey, bud. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, so um, we were just briefly talking before then, but I actually remember seeing your account on Instagram a while ago when um, you were an ambassador of Water to Go. Uh, back at the time and and so was uh was i and it was just crazy seeing you know the the adventures you're on i followed you for that and then i saw you doing more and more crazy things and you've already just said you've got more planned um and then i saw you go on joe (laughs) so how do you come up with something like uh walking the river yangtze um before we get into the sort of depth of it just what goes on in in your head and, and you suddenly think you know what i'm gonna do this year. <laughs> yeah, you know, for the past good few years, for, for the past decade, really, you know, I've been taking on pretty crazy adventures a lot. Um, the beginning adventures were a lot smaller, but also very reckless, you know, no preparation, um, sometimes no visa, sometimes no permits, just sort of off I go, machete in hand, hack through the jungle into Myanmar from Thailand, you know, stuff that I look back at and I'm thinking, damn, you know, it could have really suffered the consequences if I was caught. Um, but then they start to get bigger and better. And as they start to get bigger, they became more life-threatening. And so that's when preparation and planning and having the right team and logistics really uh, counted for everything, for the whole success or failure of the, of the expedition. Um, and I guess, you know, as they just grew, I was always looking for pretty much the craziest or the biggest thing or the hardest thing that hasn't yet been done, you know? So I'm sort of, uh, with the Yangtze, I knew about the Yangtze since I visited China when I was 19. I was only there for a few weeks. I remember leaving China and thinking, wow, you know, I've barely touched the surface. I'd love to return one day. Um, and I did, you know, fast forward six, seven years later, I was, I was planning a mammoth journey uh, to become the first person toward the Yangtze River, uh, the longest river in Asia the longest river to flow through a single country and the third longest in the, in the world, only slightly shorter than the than Nile and the Amazon. Uh, and what attracted me, it wasn't the fact that it was just a world first up for grabs. It was just the fact that it would be from the very west to the very east of China, cutting through so much diversity, um, culture, traditions. You know, I've been meeting people from all over the, all over the country and, and that really excited me. Uh, it, it is madness, but it, it is inspiring as well. And like I say, I was following your adventures from early. Um, yeah. And is this something that you've always done then? I've seen like little ones before. I say little ones, they were huge adventures, but now because you keep, <laughs> you keep raising the bar. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Are you, have you always been into the outdoors? And do you think that's, you're from Wales. Do you think it's partly because of that? Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, mountains and, and places to go in Wales and, yeah adventure it's a tough one isn't it i'm not 100 percent where it's from really i guess all of these things might have def or or probably did definitely help you know sort of being in wales there is a lot of countryside you sort of you are outdoors but i was definitely more sporty you know more into my athletics and my martial arts um when i was in school over my hiking you know, I see hiking as being quite boring. Actually. Even even now, it sounds funny, you know, I've walked over seven, seven and a half thousand miles the past few years. But the hiking part for me, the walking, that's that's boring. You know, I don't enjoy walking. 
um, which sounds yeah, crazy. I, I, I enjoyed. Yeah, I definitely didn't <laughs> I enjoyed, expect you to say that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. I'm a bit more of a. I like my adrenaline. I like my, um, you know, the physical side to it. I like the survival, and I love traveling, and I love meeting new people. And it's walking that will get me to places where bicycles, motorbikes and, and vehicles can't get to, you know, uh, and you're sort of relying solely on your survival to overcome certain challenges along the way. And I just feel that I'm really tested in certain scenarios, whether it's being followed by a pack of wolves or whether it's overcoming landslides or battling through snow blizzards or sandstorms or avoiding the bears, you know, it's this way you, you take all of that away along the Yangtze. And if it was just, you know, a walk, I probably wouldn't have done it. I would have, I would have thought, well, no, there's no reason to be, to be doing that. It was all of the challenges and my curiosity as to whether they could be overcome or not, you know? So, um, yeah. So it's all about very sporty about the activities, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that. Like I, I know that when I was young, I was more into football and, and sort of like you say, right. martial arts and then, yeah. um, as I got older, it's more into the walking, but I love the challenges of it as well. Like setting a challenge and then meeting yeah. that, and it's everything that goes into that journey. You know, overcoming. It is. Yeah. Sometimes you can doubt yourself, and then you sort of overcome it, and then you realise actually I'm capable of so much more than what I thought I was. Yeah. And I'm sure it. you had you had a lot of moments like that um, yeah. during during this as well. Yeah, big time. Yeah, uh, and especially with Mongolia. Mongolia was my first, um, my first big expedition. That was my first world record, and I was only twenty-two or twenty-three, just turned twenty-three, and I was about to walk across the whole length of Mongolia, solo and unsupported, pulling a trailer weighing eighteen stone, you know, one hundred and twenty kilograms. It's like three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, three weeks up through the Mongolian steppe. And with that journey, I did hold so much fear, you know, and so much doubt. I'd never tested myself, um, you know, to this level before. All of my previous adventures had been with a friend. And they'd been mainly cycles, you know, or if I'm in the jungle, I'm sort of being taught how to survive with like a hill tribe. So there's experts there, you know, they know what they're doing, but with Mongolia, all of the decisions that I made would have to be the right decision. And no one would be there to motivate me. I'd have to motivate myself. And if I make the wrong decision, it could cost me my life. So there were a lot of fears going into Mongolia for sure. And although Madagascar and the Yangtze River journey were, were bigger, um, I would say that I was definitely more fearful with Mongolia. Even my evacuation plan was, was awful. You know, I don't come from a money financial background, so you know, everything that I've done, I've had to really work hard for the pennies. And so that was the case with Mongolia. So my evacuation, I couldn't have a helicopter just take, come and pick me up. You know, it was a case of if, you know, if I stop, I'm dead. If I keep going, I'll survive. So it's all on me, all, all on me effectively to get myself out of a dangerous scenario. Uh, that's madness. And did you think at times, did you just start thinking, you know, that could happen at any point? This is realistically, that could happen. You could stop and uh, did you feel fear for your life at that point? I did, yeah. Yeah, with Mongolia, there was a time where I did almost die in the Gobi Desert. So I guess it was because I was slowly dehydrating myself as I was going over the Altai Mountains. It was minus 15 degrees Celsius. I wasn't really focused on drinking so much. Um, and then I was quite excited to get off the Altai Mountains and start venturing into the Gobi Desert um, because of the heat, you know. 
And as I started to venture into the Gobi, you know, the weeks went by when I was like sort of slowly running lower and lower on my water supplies. Got to a point where one of the wells where I was hoping to get water from was dry. So I had to try to make my sort of last remaining water, sort of rationing the last dribbles, if you like, to the next community, which had a confirmed water source. Um, and it was at that point, the days went on, I was just getting worse and worse. I, I could feel my organs drying up. I was delirious. I was hallucinating. Um, it was 40 plus degrees Celsius. The sun was out, you know, there's no shade, no shelter. Uh, and I was pulling the trailer through the sand, which was a mix of gravel and soft sand. So the thin tires just continued to sink in the soft sand, making it feel like it's 500 kilograms, you know? Um, and I was a lot skinnier. I was a lot weaker and I was just in pure agony. And the only shelter I could find was underneath my trailer. And I continued to rest hours at a time underneath my trailer. And it was at that point I realized that if I don't keep getting up and pushing on my water supply, I'm gonna run through and I'm gonna die out here in the Gobi Desert. And that was sort of the harsh reality um, of, you know, actually this sucks and, and actually I've missed the point of backup. And I, you know, if I don't keep getting up, then it, I'm, I'm done. Uh, and I couldn't, I only had four days, I remember vividly, I only had four days to get to that water source. I say only four days is a heck of a long time once you're, you're slowly dying, you know, but it was four days, it wasn't a week, it wasn't two weeks. And I remember I couldn't visualize four days. Normally I like to think of my goals and, you know, work towards them, but it was just too difficult. Four days felt like four years. Um, so I decided to focus on the little steps and looked at only 100 meters I could visualize, you know, I could see 100 meters ahead of me. So I decided no more than five minutes under my trailer, walk for 100 meters, rest for five minutes, walk for 100 meters, and then continue that sort of routine of breaking the goals down step by step. And it's that that got me there, you know, just about, I was in a bad way, it took me eight days to recover, but that was a, a close call of death. Very terrifying. It's funny how humans, have to do things like that we're all about purpose and setting goals and yeah. you see that in like the modern world but when it comes to that survival or even just uh, training like i set things and when i've got these challenges sometimes you think real simple things i'm going to do 10 steps there and, yeah, right. and, and and things like that and that keeps you going for some reason yeah um, yeah and also that you mentioned the sort of concept of time and your perception. Um, I don't know if you've watched that famous documentary with Joe Simpson, the climber. Um, no. I, w I wish I could remember the name to it now, but it's a real yeah. uh, famous climbing um, expedition and they he gets lost and he started thinking in that way of, you know, he's going to do this many sort of uh, yards crawling and then um, that oh, kept wow. him alive and it's just it's, it's yeah. really interesting that you say that um, that's crazy yeah it, it almost seems like it's the sort of human survival instinct like we've all got it and we'll find a way to to just break it down because yeah when you're slowly dying your brain just goes in overdrive and it can just start going off like I, there was a point where I started to think about uh, family and friends and sort of you know maybe this is it but only for a short while I then nipped that in the bud and I was like, well, no, you know, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You know, I put myself in this position. No one's got a gun to my head forcing me to do this. I knew that this is a potential of happening. It's happened. So now learn and adapt and do what you were training for in the dragons then, you know, in the gym and get out from under the trailer, strap up and keep pushing on. So it was all, almost that dogged mentality. 
it's almost like you go through a phase of, oh no, this is it, you know, family, friends, loved ones, memories, and then you, you nip that in the bud and it's almost like your body needs only one option to focus on, which is survival. And in order to survive, it must focus on the little goals to get me to the end goal, which is surviving, you know? Yeah. It's, quite, it's quite crazy, really. It's, um, it is interesting. And all that came down to the fact that one of the supplies of water just wasn't there where you thought it would be, and it meant you had to wait all this time to get water again. Yeah. Yeah, so effectively, when you come across a water source, I had to fill up my water container, which was a good 20 litres, so 20 kilograms just in water. Um, and I would need to really make sure that that's enough to last me, not to the next well, but the well after, because along the way there was confirmed and unconfirmed water sources. Um, with the detailed maps and with the help of the logistics manager, he was able to say, I think this one's unconfirmed and I think this one's confirmed. And all as that happened is I just went through so much of the water by the first well that now that it was time to get to the second well, I didn't really have enough water supplies to be able to manage that. Well, I, could, I did just about because I survived, but it was dangerously low up to the point where I could, you know, physically feel my organs, uh, my insides drying out, which is disgusting, isn't it? Yeah, it's mad that you can even think back to something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely nuts. But I'm sure that's like helped you prepare for these ones, as you say. Um, going trial forward. and error, isn't it? Always learning, yeah. trying it, to make the same mistake twice. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> and you you've done it um, the proper way going into it, and I wanted yeah. to talk about training. But just going back to the trailer, so was that just with all your supplies of water and the things you needed whilst out there? Then what was on that trailer? With the weight, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so that amounted to, so actually on an empty load with nothing in the trailer, you know, I mentioned about the budget. I can afford no factory to make me some sort of carbon fiber trailer. So it was a family friend who built it in his back garden. Uh, <laughs> oh, he's cracked me up. And that was, that was 40 kilograms on an empty load, you know, 40 kilograms with nothing in it. And then you add all uh, your water and, and everything. And then I had my water. I had about six weeks worth of food, six weeks worth of ration packs. I had the right kit and clothing to be able to survive the cold climate of the Altai Mountains. And then the right kit and equipment to be able to survive the heat of the Gobi Desert. I had electronical equipment. Um, I had the, the tent, what the camping equipment. Uh, and all of that amounted on a full load with the water uh, to 120 kilograms so, that wow. is uh, absolutely mental and then like you say you've got the different terrain that you're trying to pull that across yeah and, and then, it had no brakes so it was always nerve-wracking sort of pulling up the Altai mountains and knowing that if you miss a foot in or your foot slips the trailer's going to pull you back down you know and you're strapped in four-point harness that, that's making me nervous even hearing <laughs> that to be fair yeah or and then you you've even got the um different temperatures and the contrast of of that whilst yeah. uh, traveling that is uh, absolutely nuts uh, yes it was almost like preparing for a couple of different expeditions in one yeah you know with the different terrains and the different climates one minute you're in the mountains at minus 15 you know the next week you're in the Gobi desert at 40 plus so it is crazy really uh, following you as well i know that you're well into your training um mm. And you're into a lot of training that I'm into as well with like the calisthenics and the, the martial arts and things like that. 
So yeah. are these the things that get you prepared for this? Is this the yeah. sort of training you do? Exactly that, yeah. I, and it all started, you know, I was living out in Thailand for two years. Have you been to Thailand? I have actually. I lived there for nine months. Um, yeah, really? Yeah. Whereabouts? Uh, uh, it was like a tourist part, like Koh Tao, and I've also been in Koh Tao. Koh Tao, that's where I was. Oh, really? That's mad. <laughs> I, I love it there, I do. Um, we were really? there two years ago, yeah. Um, my girlfriend yeah. was working as a scuba diver there and um, no I, I work remote so for me I just had to sort of capitalize on that as well being able to yeah yeah that. what dive school did she work at do you remember uh, master divers master divers yeah so um yeah you know it yeah that's yeah. awesome so did, I was did working you... with uh, DJL well pretty I think there was over 52 dive schools by the time I left but I know one of the big ones master divers was quite a big one there um yeah, for two years. It was sort of Koh Tao and Koh Lipe. I don't know if you know Koh Lipe. No, I haven't heard of that. Is that close to Koh Tao? Um, it is close. It's closer to Phuket, but it's an yeah. island that no one really... Well, that was back in 2012. It's kind of like what Koh Tao would have been about 25 years ago. So when I was there, I had no ATM machine. You know, it didn't even have a boat pier. Sort of had just a um, sort of... I don't know, like a flotation sort of pod that the main boat would drop you off and the long tails would come and collect you. Quite nice. I guess it would be a lot different now. It didn't even have a 7-Eleven, so that says a lot, right? Uh, 7-Eleven's all over the place now yeah. on, uh, on Koh Tao. It's, about, it's yeah. only a small island, obviously. But yeah, um, right. <laughs> but yeah, I know it's changed a lot in Thailand with, um, with what it used to be to now. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Nice. <laughs> but yeah pretty much that's where I was sort of learning the martial arts was actually in in Thailand I was sort of living there for two years I was a master scuba diving instructor I was a Muay Thai fighter you know um, if you win the fights you'd get paid enough money to to cover two maybe three months worth of rent of accommodation uh, if you lose you go home with nothing of course a couple of bruises um, and uh, and yeah you know that was that was my sort of life out there and when I came back to the UK to plan for Mongolia I pretty much I was doing some boxing back at home anyway before I left for travels I would have been about 17 or 18 and I was sort of mixing the training of Muay Thai the training of boxing with the calisthenics I'd learned over the years anyway and sort of created my own routine but when I came back in 2013 I couldn't um, I couldn't afford no gym membership you know I just didn't I didn't have the money I moved in with my parents. Uh, I had my uncle drop me off a tractor tire uh, and a sledgehammer. And I, my workout then was just in the back garden. Sledgehammer, a, a bag, uh, in the elements, whether it was you know raining, snowing, or, or hot, it doesn't matter. I was outside training early in the morning, sort of preparing myself physically, but also mentally, and doing a lot of calisthenics. And I found that that was so effective and really helped in Mongolia, especially pulling um, the trailer. You know, this routine that I had going on really helped to build my inner core strength, which was vital for that trailer. That it was so good that I just didn't, I didn't stop. So even now, of course, money's not an issue, but even now I still use that training routine because it was just so effective and it's worked with Madagascar and now it's worked with Mission Yangtze. Yeah, well, even just going back to the um, training and well, competing. I didn't realize that you competed in Thailand, but that tells me a lot about your sort of mentality straight away because I've just been to Muay Thai classes. I've only been to a few and nice. You know, I, I've boxed here, but then going yeah. there, it's a different mentality in Thailand where 
everything's full power, everything's yeah, you know, they're just savages, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, I so, I, I so as well. <laughs> I kept going into the boxing stance, and for me, that's more like the oh, um, yeah. amateur style of on your toes. And it, your leg open, game yeah, over. he told me, Don't do that again. I did it once, <laughs> and he, he just yeah, kicked me from under my feet, and I was on the floor. I was like, Okay, I'm, I'm paying for this here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's brutal, man. It is brutal, especially so, the heat. Sorry, so you were competing out there as well then? Yeah, I was competing out in, I had mainly more um, club fights. Um, I had a stadium fight, but that wasn't, well, it was good, but it wasn't so um, entertaining. That's like a big stadium fight, um, you know, my, a big crowd around. I say stadium fight as stadiums go in, in Thailand, you know? Yeah. Um, but that was my, yeah, that was, uh, that's on YouTube, that video. I won by a first round knockout in 12 seconds. Nice, flipping out 12 seconds. <laughs> and I was like, the club fights didn't go that well. Uh, <laughs> as in, I didn't get, you know, win by knockout in, the, in 12 seconds. But uh, the club fights were the most brutal for sure. That's where, you know, you'll just have different clubs gathering up and it's a little bit more intense. It's not like a crowd of people who don't know what they're looking at. It's now a crowd full of fighters you know, sort of looking into the ring and watching you go at it with this tie. And yeah, I loved it. I loved the competition of it. I loved sort of their mindset and their discipline. You know, some of them would even sleep at the, at the gym, train three, four times a day. Um, and it was just a privilege to, to be a part of that, really. Yeah, that's uh, and that puts you in good stead. And like you say, with the calisthenics and things like that, and you found your training yeah. regime. What about nutrition? Is that something that you look into? Do you think about recovery and superfoods um, I sometimes don't like the term superfoods because now there's so many things in it but there are some amazing things you can use for recovery I use like chaga and um, seaweed and things like this that I try and put into oh, yeah. day-to-day sort of routine do you do anything like that do you think about those things um, yeah I have experimented on and off uh, with various different products different brands different foods uh, you know, after China, I went on to a full vegetarian diet as well, just to trial that. I'm not on the vegetarian diet anymore, but I haven't eaten red meat in a year now. And so I just occasionally eat chicken and yeah. fish if I touch the meats. Um, but that will be organic if I choose to, you know, I make sure it's um, in decent packaging as well. You know, because it's not just obviously the animal welfare, but it's the environment. And of course, it's the... It's the um, good of your health as well isn't it so yeah, yeah i've sort of dabbled and experimented i do take sort of plant-based protein um powders now and then as well and but um uh, you know sort of my the training background before mongolia it was a little bit unorthodox i was sort of probably not probably not the best but it worked but i was kind of putting my body through the paces and trying to starve it of the things that it needed you know, even when I was training for three hours, I would train those three hours with no water. You know, I wouldn't have a drink. Um, and I sort of was trying to get my body into that state of mind that water isn't going to be of access in the Gobi Desert as often as you want it to be, as often as you need it to be. So, you know, prepare now. Uh, don't take as much water and sort of try to get your body a little bit more prepared for that shock when I'm out there. How do you think that served you? Because it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? On one hand, you're trying to look after your body and sort of nurture it ready for 
what it's yeah. about to take. But then on the other hand, you, you don't want to be too shocked. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I found it really worked, you know, and I think it's probably, I put it more down to breaking the, you know, in that Gobi Desert when I was suffering that time, I put it down to, you know, the fact that I broke my goals down and the, um, and the training. But really, you know, what could have played a, an important part was actually sort of all of the previous experience that my body had gone through like even in Vietnam we went over 45 hours cycling so we were sleep deprived beyond belief you know I had faced dehydration cycling in the southern part of Australia before um and I had you know my body had been battered whether it was in the jungle sort of hacking through so although my body was still young being a 23 year old I had put it through its paces in terms of sleep deprivation dehydration starvation and I think probably all of that amounted and played a key part of me surviving that particular jaunt in the, you know, that particular section of the Gobi Desert. So yeah. it was probably an accumulation of all of these different things that I was doing, including the experience and what my body had faced previously. Because I think if I was, I don't know, like some, for example, if I was fresh out of university, I hadn't been out to the real world and sort of traveled and put my body through its paces. And then I all of a sudden, went to attempt Mongolia fresh out of uni or you know, as, a, as a 22 year old sort of going on a gap year I do think that I would not have been able to make it for sure so I do think it's it's experience isn't it I guess with any career it's all about climbing that ladder and going yeah. step by step rather than from the bottom you know jumping big leaps to get there yeah you'd obviously been pushing the boundaries and you just mentioned the one in vietnam as well and i think i saw a post where you had uh, talked about that and that was a good 10 years ago as well so you've been doing it from <laughs> yeah. from back then um, yeah i was you exactly a decade ago as well yeah but, <laughs> i uh, looked like a 50 year old as well didn't i <laughs> sleep deprived you know i don't know if you can see it in that photo as well but my skin was actually blue as well because the mosquito spray of the night mixed with the sunscreen um, of the day <laughs> and could, you put those two together and it goes a little bit blue so yeah you could see that you would um look you could see yeah. the color a little bit on there yeah, yeah. And, so they're just like you're not staying here you know <laughs> turn down the seven different hostels and guest houses <laughs> me and my friend like where are we gonna sleep <laughs> and it's so funny to look back on that but at the time we were i don't know we were probably laughing at the time but laughing because we were so delirious you know <laughs> Yeah, and now that's all gone sort of uh, in your favour with the experience, though, like you say. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Nat Geo walking the, the Yangtze River. Yeah. Um, so is that a docu-series? That's, uh, out yeah, that's a, yeah, so that's a two-part documentary. So it's two episodes, each episode being a one-hour show. Um, sort of the first episode is about the first six months of the Yangtze, and then obviously the second episode is the, the, the second half. Um, First half is more survival based and a bit more of the planning and the jeopardy, you know, evacuating film crew time and time again. <laughs> and, you know, some of the dangers along the way and just the wilderness of China. Whereas the second half is more of the culture, the people, the traditions, you know, the delicacies. Uh, and so it's a nice mix. What we, what we didn't want to get across on this expedition is we didn't want it to be about one man and his journey. You know, I've never been about that. It, it's got to be about the, the people I meet along the way, the country, you know, the environment as well. So there's a lot of key environmental messages in the second part of the documentary. Um, and not, 
sort of my opinion on what I think of China, but actually the people's opinion, you know, what the older generation think of the younger generation with all the modern day technology and what the younger generation think of the older generation with these sort of dying out traditions and are they going to continue to try to, to keep them going and, you know, how are they bettering the Yangtze River, you know, how are they making the country more sustainable and, you know, certain grubs, that's a delicacy like passion worm or blowing pig's liver or just crazy stuff like that, really. So I think we've, um, it was really difficult because there was just so much content. We could have probably banged out three or four episodes. And of course, with it going out in Asia, it is, it's toned down a little bit. So they don't really talk about, they don't really talk about the police pulling me in four or five different times. They don't really talk about the sensitivity being that close to Tibet. Um, they don't show, you know, my friend sort of joining me from the UK for two weeks, but only lasting six hours and being sent home after day one because of a landslide. So it's a little bit lighthearted, but that's why I think I need a book because the book will tell the real story of walking the Yanks for sure. And I think the real story, a lot of people would be shocked. So, um, but if we bring it to the UK and the US, then I'm sure we'll have more editing control because it's tailored to a Western audience then, you know? Yeah, hopefully that, that happens then. And have you got a book coming out um, soon as well then? Um, we've got the option, but now I'm just, I'm thinking, you know, do I spend more time on focusing on, on the next thing, on the next TV yeah. series, or do I focus on the book or, you know, can I do both? And so I think the best way to go about it is if we secure UK or US TV, then I will go forward with the book. Oh, that's um, awesome being out in, in Asia, you know, to follow the book on from the documentary that's going across Africa, Middle East and Asia. There's too many languages, it's, it's too many languages to juggle and, and tailor the book to each market then. Yeah. Um, it'd be better to do what I did with Mission Possible, you know, create an English book, have it um, in every English speaking market. And then if there's high demand, like there was high demand for China. So we created a, a Mandarin version of Mission Possible and a Vietnamese version of Mission Possible. So uh, I think that's the better way to go about it. So yeah, we're just sort of thinking about it for now. What, what went into the planning beforehand? Because you mentioned in um, your solo adventure in Mongol Mongolia that, mm. you know, it was a lack of planning in some parts, even though it sounds like you had, you know, you had done some due diligence with it. Um, looking yeah. at the logistics of the well um, and you had still been training before and things like that what went mm. into the planning with this and what struggles did you foresee before it yeah um, I, th I think just everything changed mindset wise between Mongolia and Mission Yangtze I do remember uh, with the, the Mongolia journey um, I was a little bit more foolhardy I guess you know, my logistics manager, Rob, sort of said, the path that you're on now has a confirmed water source, he says, but the path that you're going to take, which takes you deeper into the Gobi Desert, has an unconfirmed water source. So right there and then, I should have really chose to stay on the path, which is a confirmed water source. But me being me and, you know, wanted to venture deep into the Gobi Desert, uh, I took the path less travelled uh, and paid the price. And so I guess with this Yangtze journey, I was just more aware, you know, we are vulnerable as humans uh, and life can be taken from you fast. Um, and so the experience from the Mongolia journey and the Madagascar really helped in the success of this Yangtze journey. But this Yangtze, what was tough about this is the logistics. 
you asked like about the plan and it took over two years to plan um, this journey. I think of all of the mightiest rivers in the world, I think the Yangtze is the hardest logistically. You know, you can't, doesn't matter how rich or wealthy you are, you can't pay a certain amount of money to get permits and visas and access to national park. You know, that they're, they're not interested in that. Um, you, you have to go by it officially. It's got to be by the books. Um, you've got to befriend and partner with all of the different governments. Uh, and so that we, we had to do that, you know, effectively. The Green Development Foundation out there had to create me, uh, had to make me doctor for one year. Um, temporary doctor to get access to the national park um, but in order to get access to the national park I had to be a temporary doctor and ambassador for the Green Development uh, Foundation in order to be able to liaise directly with the government and if I then li liaise directly with the government and he's on board he then helps me get access to the authorities which could offer protection and if they come across me in the wilderness they won't deport me and so it was just, and I think it was over 14 different documents, all stamped, all signed, all verified. Um, maybe four or five years ago, I would have done it illegally. You know, I would have found a way to just do it. Uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> there's no getting around it, especially okay. with this documentary. You know, with this documentary, I was sort of, it was so difficult. I remember speaking to my production team saying, look, let's just do it. The source of the Yangtze River is going to be so wild and so remote. There's not going to be anyone there. And they were kind of like, yeah, but it will come back to, it will backfire in the future. And with the documentary, we're going to have to take certain actions. And if a government official sees them that geo and sees you in that region, then um, sort of it's game over. So I was like, yeah, okay, you're right. And we did it properly and doing it properly took a long damn time. <laughs> and, and even then you had, um, you know some issues didn't you with the police like you say um, yeah and things like that yeah. and being being stopped during this mission yeah constantly yeah i remember these um what we, what we found it went pretty much from mission yangtze to mission escape and evade uh, at one point this is also something that isn't shown in the documentary but effectively we we had to escape the region that we were in as fast as possible because it was so sensitive but we also had to evade the locals because we found out as amazing as the locals were, they were a little bit worried seeing a Westerner up there, maybe the first time in a long, long time. Um, and they would radio to the next Gur or the next nomadic camp. And they would radio until they had phone signal, then they would phone the police and then the police would drive. But the police took like six hours to drive to us because we were in the middle of the wilderness. Um, and they would rock up at like two, three o'clock in the morning. I just remember my heart just going every time because it happened like four or five different times where you're just sleeping in wild and then you've got these sort of blue lights flashing outside your tent and you're like, fuck, we are in the middle of nowhere. You know, and these headlights beaming onto your tent and you know they're not there to, they've not drove six hours to let you go. They're going to take you and they're going to question you. Uh, and they would have quite easily deported me. But I had such a strong team out in China. And still now, in fact, my team out in China is probably stronger than it is here in the UK. Um, and we had all of the right documents. They just, they just couldn't do anything. You know, it's a document with the government official saying, you leave Ash exactly where he is. Here's the technology he's carrying. Here's what he's doing. You know, and if they did just choose to deport me, they'd have the wrath of the government to deal with type of thing, you know. So I think they secretly hated that. Uh, but they 
they had to take me back in and drop me off at the location that they picked me up from once they finished questioning me. But but even still, even though you managed to win that battle, it's still an extra thing to worry about, isn't it? You've got all this yeah. walking oh, yeah. and, and, and the rest of it to do. And then this is just an extra worry, I guess, that changes yeah, your mindset. Sure. And, and why yeah. were the um, locals phoning the police then? What, what was the reason? Was they just worried what, what you were doing and if you were meant to be there? Yeah, you know, that I could have been anything and I could have been a refugee. You know, it was a it was a dangerous part of the mission as well in terms of there were bears. <laughs> we hit torpor season, which is pretty much hibernation for the bears. And that's oh, where they no. come off the mountains because it's too cold. And they actively look for food, for calories before they go into hibernation. Um, and we were delayed two and a half months from starting, which meant that we would land right into the torpor season. Um, and I went with a healthy mind of, you know, they'll be fine, leave the bears alone and the bears will leave me alone. But the locals will show me otherwise, you know, show me pictures and videos of bears going into concrete huts, scratching at steel doors, That's you know, attacking families. And I'm in a tent on my own and I'm like, yeah, what chance do I have? So that, That's so the last thing you want, isn't it? Is um, people showing you, you're like, no, we're all right. And they're going, yeah, no, they, actually, yeah, they, <laughs> look yeah, at this. <laughs> yeah, they would send it to my WeChat as well, which is uh, oh. kind of like a WhatsApp. And I'd just be like, yep, delete. <laughs> that, that is scary, isn't it? And did you yeah. have any close calls? And was that on your mind all the time then after it seeing those videos? All the time. Yeah, all the time. Um, the police and the bears seemed to be the biggest issue. And the temperature, you know, we were hit by a snow blizzard. It dropped to minus 20 degrees Celsius, sort of with my horse, Caster Troy, and with two guides um, at this point, Twitter and Beamer, who were also you know, quite, well, very nervous. They would be sometimes at two, three o'clock in the morning, they would set off Chinese firecrackers, you know, mainly for the wild yak. Uh, I learned that wild yak uh, are absolute brutes and even bears run from wild yak. And they were getting too close to castor choy, of course, being mating season. And so there was just, yeah, it was, you know, the wolves, I was followed by a pack of wolves for probably the best part of two days. I was warned by the locals as well sort of we caught this on camera that's in the documentary sort of they're trying to tell us something and me and my videographer we don't know what they're saying but my videographer films it anyway um because they're looking quite stressed and worked up and we're like oh yes yeah, okay you know she needs itn and we just sort of plod on walking and anyway six months later once my editor in beijing had got the footage um <laughs> they reached out saying you have no idea what these locals were telling you but what they were saying is that only yesterday a local lady was killed by a pack of wolves right in that valley where you're headed and they were warning us against it for those next two days anyway again yeah we we were there stalked by a pack of wolves whether it was the same pack or not i don't know but it's pretty um sounds like it would be right so watching that footage back obviously you weren't aware what they were saying um did your heart sink? How did that feel when you saw it after? Or was it more for me because you, <laughs> you had got past it? Yeah, I laughed because I was like, yes. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I didn't understand what they were saying. Because yeah. even if I did, and they're like, do not go down there. A lady was killed and you will also be attacked. I'd have been like, hmm, maybe it's stupid to go down there. But luckily and unluckily, we didn't know what they were saying. And we, so we were none the wiser. And we heard this pack of wolves, you know, following us for two days and we were kind of awe-inspired because it was amazing. They were howling. We counted, I think, maybe six of them. Um, but at the same time, there was something definitely quite creepy about it as well, you know? Yeah, that's... Normally, I was more worried about the bears than the wolves. Wolves are normally pretty good, you know? We're a bit of a risk for them to attack a human, you know? 
Um, so I wasn't too worried. So that lady must have just been on her own, maybe looking injured, maybe a you know, smaller build. And I don't know, they just took advantage. It's mad eye predators, you know, they, they take all this in mind and then they've stalked you still, though, for two days. And because uh, they were taking it, I reckon. Yeah, taking a look at you. That's just uh, yeah. madness. And you could hear them uh, whilst in your tent as well. Would you, would you, how do you sleep when you've got that in sort tent. of in mind? Oh, well, you're walking, you're walking all the way through the day that as soon as your head hits the, hits the ground, you're out. Um, but, you know, it was me and Kyle. Um, my videographer so I think it would have been a lot harder to sleep if it was me on my own for that section for sure you know maybe I'd set up a fire or something on the outside um, eat far from my tent type of thing but it was both me and Kyle and we had been attacked by Tibetan Mastiffs before that as well well not attacked but gone for and it's just a case of picking up these rocks or throwing them at the dogs um because they're out to get you you know they could kill the wolves so um they're they're sort of after us and we're just doing everything to get rid of them had you taken advice before because i don't know if you saw that um video that went viral recently with the cougar someone was out running and he got he happened to run towards the baby cougars and didn't realize and suddenly thought a best time round and and go back but he had to stay facing this cougar that was going for yes him. i did see that video yeah yeah and another one like it was following for like eight minutes or something yeah and for me i would probably just run and, and get attacked but <laughs> he just stayed sort of looking keeping eye contact staying big and he threw a rock as well so yeah, i know i saw i would you know at the start of the video i was like throw a rock you know get get the rock and, and, and throw it and sort of like step towards it whilst you throw it and it's gonna run off but he didn't sort of realize that until eight minutes later and that's all it took he threw that one rock and it sprinted off didn't it it was gone i probably would realize it about 30 seconds into being eight or something i I wouldn't even think about it no you don't know right and yeah yeah, no you are right and it's the locals that taught me that for sure um you know i always try to get a little bit of ground knowledge from the locals so i don't have any military background when it comes to survival sort of all of my all of the things that I've learned to help me on my journeys have been learned from the locals, whether that's the, the Burmese hill tribe for the jungles of um, Southeast Asia or Madagascar, sort of learning what to hunt, what to gather, uh, or Mongolia, the certain respects or traditions and how to, you know, keep the wolves at bay or how to scare off Tibetan mastiffs. Um, but, you know, with the bears, this was the horrible thing with the bears. They didn't really know what to tell me other than never stay in your tent. That's all they said. They literally said that if there's people, if there's locals, always stay with the locals because they've got Tibetan mastiffs all chained up and the Tibetan mastiffs are the ones that try to keep the bears at bay. Uh, that's why they're there, sort of protecting the livestock and the locals. Yeah, but right. sometimes there were no locals and we were out there in the wilderness for days with no other human contact. I've, I've been so much fear. Like That's just a different world when you say that because being from yeah. the UK, we're just used to... We, we haven't got anything to worry about like that. And the abstract, house cats. Yeah. <laughs> unpredictable house cats. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's about as scary as it gets. And then um, yeah. even when I went to Thailand, you know, I was thinking about things there and it's not too bad there, really. Um, I'd, I'd see a spider and be like, should I be worried about this? But there's no spiders to be worried about out in um, Thailand. But we're just not used to it, are we? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of... Um... Yeah, we've got it quite quite easy back here in terms of wildlife for sure, haven't we? Yeah, we're definitely. Just being aware of the cows when you're crossing a field and uh, 
<laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so where did this mission start from and where did it okay. end? So this Yangtze journey, it was from uh, the true and scientific source of the Yangtze in southern Qinghai province in the west of China, which is slightly north of the Tibetan border. So that's where the real sensitivities were. Uh, and it's about just over 5,100 meters altitude. It's very wild up there. Uh, very, you know, the depth of winter gets to about minus 40 degrees Celsius. Um, and so from that point, you're sort of following the river, sort of trying to stay as close to it as possible, trying to follow the bends. I carried like a tracking device, which was for Guinness Book of Records to monitor. Uh, and pretty much every five minutes, every day, all day, for 352 days, it would track my exact location with my speed, um, my elevation, my longitude, latitude coordinates, just pretty much all of my movement and can see exactly where I am within five meters. So it was pretty damn accurate. Um, and so, yeah, from that point, from the source, which was the first attempt was a failed attempt to the source because we lost all four members of the crew due to altitude sickness, you know, bleeding from the nose, vomiting, and then the film crew got um, scared of the bears, so they left. And so that brought me back to the city, having not quite made it to the source, I regrouped with a different team and a horse that the film crew left behind called Caster Troy. And um, yeah, we, we commenced the journey from there. And you sort of wind down, go through 11 different provinces. You go down south of China, it then takes a 90 degree bend in the river, goes, shoots up um, northeast and then goes east and pours out into the East China Sea in Shanghai. So, you know, what a, what a great place to finish. So the team, you mentioned some of the team dropped out. How many people were with you, um, you generally and how many were dropping out? Um, because some dropped out with uh, altitude sickness and others left because they were scared of the bears. When they left, did you not think, actually, maybe I should be leaving as well? No, um, I think that's because I was more mentally prepared. So I had like two years to mentally get my head in the game for this, you know, whereas some of these film crew in, in you know, in all respect to, to them, they uh, only had like a week or two to adapt their mindset into like, fuck, we're going to be filming when and sleeping out where there's a big threat of being attacked by, by wolves or by bears. Or, you know, there was one guy saying that, um, just the region that we were in it was like cowboy stuff I remember that actually and I couldn't communicate with them which was annoying but I had a satellite phone um and I had to call my Beijing team once he was pretty much like saying that people will cross the region uh and they'll find us and he was pointing to the horse doing that he was pointing to himself and like doing all of that and he was pointing to me as well and I was like, oh, my God, that looks horrific what he's doing. But what's he trying to say? What's he trying to say? And then I found out through translation that he was scared that he was a, uh, he was a, a Zador boy, which is Zador is like a specific area in that region. And now we were about to cross into a different region, um, which was Chumalai. And that the Chumalai and Zador is like cowboy stuff. Like they'll kill you and just rob you of all your equipment and sell it on the market. Um, which is old school. It's happened in the past. Maybe it still happens now, but very rare. And I, I don't think so. The team in Beijing don't seem to think so either. It was almost like he was passed on that, those stories by his parents or his grandparents. And he's, he still believes in that. Um, 
and so he was he was scared so his was a mix of altitude sickness and just the fear of wanting to get the heck out of there which was annoying because he was a tibetan guide and he was there to get me off the mountains in case i got altitude sickness but now roles had reversed i had to get him off the mountains um that brought me back and yeah that was four members down already and we hadn't made it to day number one and we were like wow okay this is intense and by the third or fourth month through the 16 different people that joined at different times whether it be a two days or three days or a week or two weeks i had lost 10 of those 16 members um sort of they abandoned the trip or had to be evacuated uh, simply because of the altitude or because of fear or because of injury you know like i said my uk photographer came over his plan was to join me for two weeks six hours into day number one he was he was gone landslide that he wasn't um didn't know how to navigate and i think that's where i learned also a lot a lot about not just myself but the experience sometimes i take it for granted or sort of dismiss it i see it as just a cool adventure and sort of everyone anyone can do it type of thing and it was only at this point that i realized well no that's kind of like me stepping into my photographer's world thinking i can do what he does when i clearly can't i don't know what all of the you know the camera settings and you know what angles to capture lighting how all of that works and effectively what i had done is i had brought him into my world telling him telling him it's sort of it's going to be okay and it wasn't and yes yeah, six hours that's when he was like wow i don't know how to navigate a landslide you know i'm not comfortable or capable um sort of confident of my abilities to get over that and I gave him two various different options the only options and I was like I'm going to step back get rid of ego get rid of pride I need you to be fully honest with me um, you know can you undergo one of those options if you can't no big deal I'm glad that you've told me the truth we'll get you back home if you can it's at your own risk type of thing um, it is sketchy but it's uh, your decision to make so I gave him the option and yeah, he, he made the right choice. He got rid of the ego, the pride and was just like, yeah, no, I, I'm shit scared. And I just don't feel like I'm going to be able to make it. And I was like, right, you've got a family at home. Let's get you back there. So yeah. um, positive yeah. outcome all around. That's something as well that I think about when I see these things is that it's not just, you've got the film crew and people who are part of the team, but I always wonder how much training they undergo. Obviously I heard about your training, but, it's also important for them, I guess, to be prepared yeah. mentally and yeah. physically. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. Um, yeah, yeah, 100%. It's like sometimes I forget, you know, I, I, it's easy to point out the bears and the police. But sometimes when people say, what was the biggest danger? The biggest danger was also the people that joined me. Um, in the most respectful way, that's not in a diss. That's in a way of, you know... All of that training that you can train for yourself and i train so hard for myself but you can't train for other people yeah. you know so if i'm training like an absolute animal every day and really sort of getting my head in the in the game i understand the dangers um i've got a hold of my fears and then all of a sudden i'm expecting sort of the film crew to to do in two weeks what's taken me 10 years effectively um to do is just not it's just not going to happen. And I thought maybe the first film crew was just an unlucky film crew. But then when it happened to the second, to the third, to the fourth, and when it was constant, I realized that, yeah, no, it's not a thing. So I did have to self-film uh, for a lot of the time in the first six months. Um, I just closed down the expedition and stopped everyone from, from joining me at that point and then opened it up again for the second half. And you can actually really see that in the documentary as well. 
you can really see in the first episode, there's an awful lot of self-filming going on. Uh, and in the second episode, there's not a lot of walking going on, but there's a lot of being in big communities or towns or cities. So there's a lot of events and activities where the film crew are able to fly to and capture the events. But the second episode, you don't see much of me walking. And that's purely because we needed a lot of broadcast quality footage. And if there was too much of me self-filming, it wouldn't have made the cut for Nat Geo. Um, so we had to do some editing trickery there, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's testament to your mindset though, because you've prepared for all that. And most people that I know have got that kind of mindset to undertake these things and, and train mm. hard. And like you say, you've done the solo adventures. They don't like having to think about these external things uh, where, right. because something outside of your control can then come in and alter it when you're trying to concentrate on you've got was it four thousand miles to walk and mm. but that's testament to you to be able to adapt and roll with it and make these decisions because for me i wouldn't want to have to worry about that i've got bears i've got wolves i've got <laughs> i've got the walk itself yeah 100%, yeah yeah it, and it was yeah there were times when i was just like oh my god you know what am i doing and i'm trying to capture it and you know, even when the police do come and get me, I'm, I'm, I'm now thinking, like, sh I'm gutted that this has happened. Uh, I hope they don't do anything stupid, like deport me or anything, but I've got to try to film this as well. You know, so it's, uh, and I did capture some moments with the police as well. Um, I always say the most, either the most embarrassing or the most awkward moments of the trip probably make the best moments to film. But I'm, I'm still a sucker with that. You know, I still do find it hard to get that camera and start filming. And, you know, I had to think of social media. We were trying to make it one of the world's most digitally engaging um, world firsts. Pretty much meaning every day there will be some sort of post, live stream, vlog, blog. Um, and we then opened it up to have people actually put their phones down. And if you're able to join me, come and join me. Uh, that was the second half of the expedition. And so there was that interactivity as well. But then I also needed the environmental angle. So I, I made it my root mission to meet up with different organizations and conservations like the WWF, like the fishery department and capture their story. And so it's sort of rucksack down, sort of let's shoot over there. Let's sort of film their story. Let's, you know, and then you sort of become a director. You're also producing it. You're also making sure that you're getting the right, the right lighting. You know, if you've got no film crew, if you've got a film crew, then great. Um, but sometimes that was hard as well because it was different film crews at different times. So they had a sort of a different outcome, effectively. They saw the documentary differently to how we needed the documentary to be. So sometimes at film and I'd have to like step them back and say and show them, you know, this is how it needs to be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was crazy, really, because it was it was sort of an expedition. It was like adventure it was business it was sort of direct and it was producing it was being my own sort of social media manager it was being my own sort of logistical manager i had to learn the language because sometimes i have to converse and communicate and that's what i love about adventure man you know it yourself when you go off traveling that is what it is it's it's self-development on such a high level isn't it oh yeah definitely and it, as you just started mentioning there it's like so many facets to it where you've got the filming and the logistics and the visa. Um, and that's why it's that much more impressive. And as you say, you've got the different angles that you can take on video in it because of that. So you've got, uh, you can make that footage into so many different things. It can be hard to yeah. know which direction to go in. With yeah, the, exactly. 
with the social media um, doing that, what kind of momentum did you get? Did you start becoming even more well-known in, in China and Asia from doing this? Yeah, well, it, it's funny because <laughs> another string to the bow was the fact that it's all good having sort of my Western social media. I had like the Instagram, the Twitter, but that's not allowed in China. You know, that's, that's banned. Google, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, uh, all of these things. I completely forgot. Things. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah, and so what I had to do was get on my Chinese social media platforms, and I had over 12. There was um, Douyin, there was Douyao, there was Weibo, there was Weijing, there was Yuko, there were, oh, there were many different social media platforms. So everything that I was posting internationally, I had to send to my team, and they had to translate it, and then we would get it posted. So it was simple, like over 20 platforms we were posting to. And so the Chinese platforms took off, especially sort of after the halfway point, I was contacted by uh, Adidas and GQ, and they were launching, you know, Jet Li, yeah. uh, the movie star, they were launching his um, clothing range called Wuji. It's sort of like a co-branded range between Jet Li and Adidas called Wuji. And they wanted uh, Jackie Huang and myself to launch it. So Jackie Huang, he's like a massive movie star, a martial arts expert. Um, and so, yeah, we were shooting with Adidas and GQ. And of course, that made it far out there. He was shouting me on, on his, and I think he's got, I don't know, like 20 million um, followers on just his one Weibo account. And so that really helped sort of the Chinese audience understand who I was and what I was doing. And that more, brought more traction over to the social media uh, within China. Uh, and when I opened it up, there were yeah, a lot of members of public, a lot of Chinese celebrities, a lot of brands and organizations joining me um, on the expedition. So yeah, it was sort of building up in China quite a bit. And then China spread out, you know, Japan and Asia and whatnot. And then there was a bit more higher demand for Nat Geo Asia to go ahead with the documentary, which was exciting. So has that changed your life because of that recognition of doing this now? It's, it's definitely, it's helped majorly, yeah. Um, like after Mongolia, obviously it was still a struggle. Madagascar was still a struggle. A, a little bit of a struggle after Madagascar. But this one, yeah, was, it's sort of that official sort of stamp. Um, I was there, I was called back out by the, the Sichuan government in China. I did sort of an Asia speaking tour. <clears throat> and then of course that Joe Rogan um, platform helped massively. I was then contacted by the Rocks agent. <clears throat> clear my throat so rubbing shoulders with the rock not bad and it always so agents. Is, is, um, is my agent which is crazy so i'm with wme so i got a strong team out in los angeles i was there recently before lockdown should i say filming in mammoth california and we've got some big ideas so yeah it was sort of mission yancy <clears throat> which spurred on the whole joe rogan sort of wme Nat Geo, you know, and it just, just keep working, isn't it? Perseverance took me seven years, but we're, we're there and we're just still getting started. <laughs> it's nice to see as well, because as I said earlier in the, in the episode of uh, seeing some of the journey, it's always rewarding when you see it, isn't it? From, from early on. And yeah. I, saw, I saw some of these things you were doing in China, but then I didn't see any build up to the Joe Rogan podcast. I don't think I'd seen your social media for a little bit. And then I was oh, like, yeah. hang on, I know this guy. <laughs> Is this on Joe Rogan? Um, <laughs> but I'm sure you're like a, a lot of us where you probably, do you watch Joe Rogan usually as well? 
I uh, I listened to a few of the podcasts when I was on the Yangtze journey. So, so that was all, that was kind of strange, wasn't it? You know, listening fully to the, you know, I think it was like the Kevin Hart, the Mike Tyson, the Tyson Fury. And then, you know, within a year later, actually being on there, um, which was super cool. And it was a fast turnaround. It was a case of, yeah, are you free? The start of January. And I'm like, wow, that's in two weeks time. It's like, yes, I will be there. <laughs> Were you nervous? I can imagine getting in there and just because of watching it and knowing the studio, this was back in the old studio before he started getting flack. Um, just in a bit, it's a bit surreal, you know, sitting in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't um, like, I'm a huge fan of Joe himself. The podcasts are great as well, but I think, you know, I flew out there with a friend of mine, Martin, also from Wales. And he was like, the the, the the podcast are like his religion he is he is watching them all the time so i think for him he was that sort of shock of capture that starstruck sort of oh my god but for me like joey diaz i didn't really know much about joey diaz at the time and he stepped out i was in straight after joey diaz and he came out and sort of we shook hands and you know uh, exchanged a few words and then martin was in the back there and after the podcast he just came out and said that handshake was so wasted on you. Do you even know who that was? <laughs> so, yeah. and of course, I did know who he was, but I wasn't starstruck because I don't watch um, like Joey Diaz's podcast. And, and with, um, with Joe Rogan, he was just such a cool character. So calm and, and just relaxed that there were no real nerves, to be honest. No. I was just happy to be there. I think it was just a great conversation where I went on for over two and a half hours. Even after that, we were speaking for about an hour off podcast. Genuinely cool guy, just as cool off podcast as he is on, you know? So it was just a uh, cool atmosphere and his guys working there as well. And, and of course, young Jamie, it was just a, a good setup, a great team. Um, and an all around cool experience. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I love Joey Diaz as well. I would have definitely have been uh, excited to see him. Uh, yeah. He's always making me laugh. So it, the studio is amazing as well, isn't it? Haven't they got all sorts yeah, in the it, back there? Yeah, it's much bigger than it looks on YouTube. On YouTube, it looks like kind of um, not too small, like more short and narrow. Whereas yeah. when you're actually there, you realise that, wow, actually the, the room goes down quite a distance and it is actually quite wide and the table's massive anyway. So it's a lot bigger in there than it looks on YouTube for sure. Um, but like outside of that studio, yeah, it's, it's great. Proper, proper man cave. You know, you've got everything in there. That's he's amazing. even got balls parked in there, you know. It's, it's a big place. Yeah, he's got everything, hasn't he? Yeah, he's like got a float it's tank. Like a, like a bomb shelter, you know, just this bomb-proof. <laughs> you've got your pool table, you've got your your salt baths, you've got your gym, your car's there. He's got this sort of bow and arrow shooting range. It's all electronic, you know, 25 meter laser range. It's a, <laughs> it's a cool place, man. It's the, the ultimate studio, isn't it? And like you say, a man cave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what an experience. That's awesome. Um, yeah. I'll, ask, I'll ask a couple more questions and then sure. you go, mate. I appreciate the time. No worries. Um, so we've just talked about a lot of the struggles, but um, could you pinpoint just one of them that was the, the hardest thing to overcome and felt the most rewarding as well to, to overcome from the, the River Ooh. Yangtze? From the River Yangtze, I would say it was, it was getting out of the mountains and arriving at the first bend of the Yangtze. So the first bend of the Yangtze was always, always this dream destination to get to. You know, once I make it there, 
I no longer need to be worried about bears. I don't need to be worried about police as such, wolves, um, the cold temperatures. Um, and so I knew that that's the point that I really wanted to get to. Um, but you know, that I wasn't even halfway through and there was some major challenges still after the first bend, but it was good for my psyche. You know, it was a huge milestone to the journey. If I make it there, I'm relatively, I'm, I'm on my way type of thing. So that was exciting. Yeah, that, I, I suppose it helps you get that second wind where you think I can do this, even, yeah, you know, whatever's sure. in front. What yeah. did you learn about? Escape and evade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that sounds like it, it was, it's suddenly <laughs> become like the hardest part of it in some ways as well, I guess, yeah. and probably a bit more unexpected to, to what you thought. Yeah. Uh, what about, um, because you've talked a little bit about people there and meeting different people and the interactions, what did you learn about people in general? Anything new or, um, because obviously yeah. different cultures aren't very different. Like you say, the police drove six hours to get to you. That's yeah. just, that in itself is surreal. Yeah, true. Yeah. When you put it like that. Yeah. What I would say is, I don't know, you know, China's been hit hard in the news. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes for very right reasons as well. And sometimes I can't help but feel sorry for the actual people of the country who were nothing to do with this because the people are, you know, the friendliest people I've, I've come, or some of the friendliest people I've ever come across, really genuine, really down to earth. You know, maybe some people have this idea. I know my friend certainly did when he joined me. He had this idea of China being quite suppressed, you know, the people being quite down and, you know, they're not allowed on Google. And, but uh, they have their own version of Google. They have their own version of Instagram. You know, what I'd say is there's a super strong sense of community. There's 60, 70, 80 year olds sort of on the street dancing, doing their Tai Chi with the music on. It's, it's happening. And, you know, it's just a, it's a good place to be. It's a pleasant place to be. Um, and the locals along the way were just so warm and giving. Um, and unlike Madagascar, Madagascar had its own crazy stories. But sometimes uh, down south of Madagascar, it's very impoverished. And, you know, they struggle for finance. So there's always a catch. Even if you set up your tent in the middle of nowhere, you'll have a local approach you and say he owns this land and now you must pay. Uh, whereas in China, I didn't get any of that. You know, even when I came to the cities in hotels, and if they'd seen me on the news, they'd be like, stay here for as many nights as you want. We will feed you um, your breakfast, food, lunch, or whatever. We'll pack you a lunch when you leave and it's all free of charge. They don't want anything, no money. They just want to help you on your journey, wish you all of the best. And so fond memories of, uh, of the Chinese people for sure. Yeah. And I bet that becomes some of the, the nicest parts of the journey, doesn't it? When you, yeah, you, you know, it's, it's reasons like that, that I take on the journey. Yeah. I always say the locals can make or break a journey. Um, and luckily I've been fortunate enough to not have the journey broke by locals, no matter where I've been so far touch wood. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, thanks for coming on. Um, where can can people find you on socials? And also, what have you got coming up? Because it sounds like you've still got more adventures, which I don't know how you, you can top this last one, but I'll, I'll be looking for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and maybe I won't top this, this last one. Um, what we're looking at is more just as extreme, just as ambitious, you know, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a world first. It doesn't necessarily have to be a year long either. Um, I think uh, I'd like to build on the platform and break more in to having my own sort of TV show, if you like. So everything that I've done now in terms of interactivity, in terms of just pure adventure, in terms of um, 
environmental and sustainability causes, we've reached great platforms. But right now we want to we want to move it up to the next stage. And if I can do what I'm doing or do what I love, what I'm passionate about, um, with the backing of TV, so we can show it up out to a, a, a much bigger audience, then that's the direction that uh, that I want to go for sure. But um, yeah, still young, 29 years of age, so um, still many many years left. So yeah, it feels like we're just getting started. So it's exciting. And if you are interested in find out what's next, you know, do follow along on the Instagram, I'd probably say is the, the best, which is just Ash underscore Dykes, um, or the website, Twitter, Facebook, I'm on all of them, really. Awesome, thanks so much, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be uh, looking out for the, the new adventures, and uh, I wish you all the best as well, you deserve it, and appreciate um, yeah, and thanks for doing this, I really, really appreciate it. No, thank Very you, nice. thanks for your time, it's been, it's been great fun. Awesome, thanks, mate.